Can I light your cigar, sir? Of course you can. Wait, smell it first. This is as mild and aromatic a cigar, <laughs> but high-end tobacco. So this is this is something I have not done for uh, very often. This is uh, here. Give give it some inhales while we do this. Yeah, and turn it a circle. You're listening to Cinepunked. This episode, knock on no doors. I'm your host, Robert J. E. Simpson, and for this edition, we're presenting another one of our conversations with cult filmmakers. Our guest this time, Richard Elfman. Richard is part of the Hollywood Elfman dynasty. He's a writer, performer, director, and musician. His surrealist theatrical group, the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo, would later morph into the American pop rock band Oingo Boingo. In 1980, he directed the cult film Forbidden Zone, a surrealist fantasy featuring the Mystic Knights themselves, Susan Terrell, and the man with the golden guns, diminutive actor Hervé Vilchez. While Richard moved on to other creative endeavours, the film gained a cult following, and nearly 40 years later, he has a sequel in pre-production. Later in 2019, his latest film, Hipsters, Gangsters, Aliens and Geeks, is expected to be released. Now, this conversation is a little different from our others. Earlier this year, I made my first trip to California and made plans to meet Richard. We've been social media friends for several years and decided to record part of that conversation for a potential podcast. Now, as a heads up, I should warn listeners that the sound quality is at times variable, owing to some minor technical issues. Uh, Some of the language used might be at times offensive and not to all tastes. I apologize in advance for that. In the interest of not watering down things, however, I've left the conversation pretty much as live warts and all. As the recording starts, we've already spent several hours eating and drinking at Richard's house in Hollywood, and at times that is very much in evidence. To paraphrase the bonzos, the noises of the hospitality are a part of this recording. Enjoy. Richard Elfman with whiskey and cigar, ready to make a fool of himself. How do you like that cigar, by the way? That's nice, yeah. That's very palatable. Yeah, no, it's a, a, a chow, chow moon trance. But it's, uh, like, we were together like six years before I found something that she liked. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and not, no comments about, but if you're not a regular cigar smoker, sure. this is a very mild, aromatic, it, it's almost like a pipe perfume. We oh, see, I do like a pipe. It's have, like a pipe perfume. I have a pipe um, which sometimes follows me on my travels, oh. um, but I decided not to bring it to the States because I don't need the encouragement. Mm. Um, hey, does Hollywood look okay to you, sir? So I, I have to introduce the show, Richard. So <laughs> you're listening to Cinepunked Interactive Discussions for Film Lovers. Uh, and this episode, rather unusually, is taking place in the Hollywood Hills, and I'm joined... Under the Hollywood sign. Under the Hollywood sign. So I'm your host, Robert J. Simpson, and I am joined very specially uh, by none other than Mr. Richard Elfman. Hello, sir. <laughs> Richard. <laughs> this is perhaps the most surreal moment I've had doing these yet. <laughs> Thank you very much for facilitating my surreal fantasy. And it seems entirely appropriate <laughs> because I'm here ostensibly to talk to you about uh, a cult film that I love um, and that I think uh, many other people love as well, um, Forbidden Zone. 
And we've got to talk about what's upcoming. We are. We're, we're going to well. build to that. So what we'll do, um, so Richard is still a very active filmmaker. Um, but what we're going to do, we're going to talk a little bit about, first about uh, Forbidden Zone, which is a, a, a cult film which uh, has a increase in recognition over the last... 40 gosh, years. I was just thinking that. Gosh, it is nearly 40 years. 40 years. Oh my gosh. I feel old now. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit younger than this film. Yeah. But... I'm nearly 40, and this film is, is actually over 40. Wow. It's 40 years old. Wow. That's shocking. Do you uh, now that I'm rested, I'm ready for Forbidden <laughs> Zone 2. <laughs> so before we get to Forbidden Zone 2, uh, let us talk about well, for, for, Forbidden Zone. So, um, so I realize there's going to be people who are going to tune into this and probably aren't going to have any idea who you are because this is the nature of what we do is we, we talk to people who maybe are not so unknown, but they're going to know the name Elfman. I think, um, and it's probably fair to say, uh, you have a, a relative who also works in the industry. I have a couple. You have a couple? Oh, yeah. Do you want, do you want to name them all? Let's it's, 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 it's give them kudos. <laughs> actually, 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 I've, I've got a, a bunch that work in the industry. You're not from the film industry, though, originally. No, I was born in Watts. We moved up to Crenshaw, uh -huh. which might as well have been a thousand miles from Hollywood. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it wasn't until I, uh, God, went to the Bay Area, was in a French theater company, uh -huh. came back to Hollywood. Okay. And, uh, among other things, threw the head of a studio into a pool at a black time party. Right. Uh, you know, and, and paid my dues. Did you have, uh, so did you have any interest in joining the film industry as a, as a, as a youngster, as a... No, I had a chip on my shoulder. It was kind of, you know, as, as an artist. <laughs> and I, 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 I had a card that said, like, knock on no door, suck on no dick. <laughs> <laughs> was that actually your card? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, I, I have friends that suck on dicks, and I have nothing <laughs> against that. And I've even <laughs> produced, directed, and performed in a transvestite troupe. So it was really just humor, but I have nothing. <laughs> I guess my, I love my gay friends. <laughs> so that, that, that's, um, that, that, let's start this just to give people a little bit of background. Um, so you, uh, you're born 1949, so mm -hmm. you, you are, I can't believe this, you're 70 already. Uh, you don't look it. Or that, you know, <laughs> 50 something, 50 something, maybe. 25 years in the ring, man. <laughs> Is that what it was? Yeah, like? I, no, I was in a pro stable. As a sparring partner. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a, it, as a career choice or? No, it was a bizarre choice. It was a theatrical choice. It was uh, like some people have natural whatever abilities, you know, like a tennis <laughs> star or they could hit a baseball uh -huh. or uh, <laughs> hit a soccer goal, whatever. Sure. Okay, a bizarre thing with me, and I, I'm not violent. I don't like to hurt people. Yeah. But I had a natural right hand. Okay. And I grew up in a in a, a rough neighborhood, uh -huh. uh, and um, if I hit a guy directly on the jaw, even if he was much bigger, mm -hmm. he would drop to the ground. <laughs> and it comes, uh, it's not an arm thing. Okay. It comes from the ball. See how I'm pushing my shoulder forward? Sure. This is great for a podcast. See how I'm pushing my shoulder forward? Rich, Richard, okay. for the benefit of our listeners, is pushing until, his shoulder. <laughs> 
later when I was like 27 uh -huh. and I was in a, a, a sparring partner in a pro stable right. that I learned the left hook where you dodge under a right and see how I'm pushing my shoulder up. Uh -huh. So it's not an arm thing. And then I learned I could, I could knock a guy out with a left hook. And so I look at life as theater and I was accepted into this other universe. Okay. Uh, and I liked being in that universe. Even though I'm not violent, I don't like to get in fights, I don't like to hurt people. Uh -huh. But it was the one sport that I was naturally could do. Bizarre, I wish it were tennis. <laughs> <laughs> but it was boxing. Uh, and with modern science, I've had like a really good nose job. <laughs> And uh, except for the vertebrae fractures that I've had, uh -huh. where it was my, my neck was trying to keep my head attached. <laughs> but anyway, anyway, I'm not a violent person and I don't like to hurt people, but it kept me in fucking ridiculous shape. <laughs> and, uh, I, 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 I have a degree of confidence when I walk my lady home from a bar, particularly after six drinks. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about your, you're from LA. I was born in Watts. Okay, so, so and we moved up to Crenshaw, like okay. Boys in the Hood. So that was like the improvement. Okay, so, <laughs> so basically from, from one part of shitty LA to another part of shitty LA. Is that right? Well, it was all South okay. Central LA. It was, uh, I, I, I grew up in, in a black neighborhood okay. and went to black schools. What was that like? Well, it was, uh, how can I say it? Uh, I was a state track champion. And so someone said like, boy, a white boy ain't supposed to run that fast. Uh -huh. And uh, okay, forgive me for using this word. And then someone said, he ain't whitey, red nigga. <laughs> and then, uh, God, I, I was with some guys at the track team. We were in like another neighborhood. These big guys from the other school, I came up and they're giving me shit. Uh -huh. And I, I, I haven't done, I haven't gotten a lot of fights outside the ring. Right. But anyway, I was 15 years old uh -huh. and this guy's giving me all this shit about my mother and I hit him in the jaw. He was bigger than me and I knocked him out. <laughs> and my friends from the track team, my reputation grew. But I actually, I was generally the guy who broke fights up and did get into fights. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very strange world that you grew up in. So, and by the way, my, my, my brother Danny uh -huh. was like a bespeckled science nerd. And he went to a different high school, but I kept him safe. <laughs> Was this your job to go around the different high schools, making sure that elephants everywhere were well? It was. Protected? I, I, I mean, the kids got balls. He uh, after high school, well, he, he came to Paris and performed with my theater company for a, uh -huh. a summer, but then he went to Africa for a year, from the west coast to the east coast, no money. Uh -huh. Guys got balls. So yeah, that that that's. Uh, look, so you, you you were at high school in in LA and basically a, a, a black school as, a, as the white guy who basically looks like he should be an Irishman. To be fair, 
Well, you, you, you have to see me before my last nose job. Was, is, is the red tinge to your hair? It's, 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 you know, I mean, is, is this a family trait, the, the red hair? But by the way, I, I, I've, I don't know if there's a thing with past lives, but I have the greatest affinity for Irish culture. Uh-huh. I, I could live in Ireland in a minute. Yo. I, I love the music. Uh-huh. Uh, and actually, in Forbidden Zone 2, we've got Irish dancing, and I'm taking Celtic dance lessons right now. Are you really? Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll be aided by some wires Okay. for my jumps and leaps. When you get that made, you will have to come to Belfast and uh, <laughs> do an event with us. Um, so your early career, before you get into film, is, is very much around theatre. No, 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 no. no. My, my first thing is I, I'm an Afro-Latin percussionist. A what? Since I'm a percussionist. A percussionist? What was the first a- word, sorry? Afro-Latin. Afro-Latin, Since okay. Since I was 13. Okay. Uh, and that, that was my passion. And I still, I'm playing a band right now. Uh-huh. Mambo de Monaco. Okay. Uh, and, and I play Latin, Afro-Latin percussion. Right. And my first love, it'll probably be, if everything else washes up, if I could just play in my band, I'm happy. Okay. Yeah. So you did... Ba-bum, bum, 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 So what took you to Paris? Bizarre. Okay, so, uh, I'm in this, uh... <laughs> It's like this Afro jazz group. I'm the only white guy. And they send us to, uh, we get a deal with Capitol Records. They send us to Las Vegas. We're doing some show while we're preparing to do the album. They need some little theatrical act. So by default, I'm directing it. I'm like 19 or 20 years old. Uh And then there's a fight on stage. We're rehearsing. Puerto Rican guy with this guy from Brooklyn and I broke up the fight and got the show up that night and some guys from Vegas said boy you can direct so now I'm with the coquettes in San Francisco because they owned this palace theater there and it's like this giant monthly mostly drag show Mm -hmm. that I'm directing and I'm performing with too in in a goonie dress okay although I'm not a beautiful Johnny Depp I'm like an ugly bizarre David Lynch track character. Are you, are you drumming in this or? No, no, I'm performing like 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 Eric Satie and taking a knife to the piano. It's <laughs> you know, bizarre. But I, I'm directing like musical numbers. Okay. Uh, my own performances were bizarre. Uh-huh. And then uh, it's a long story, but I ended up Festival of New Theater in Canada. Some people see me. They go back to Paris. Peter Brook from the Royal Shakespeare Company picks them up, gives them a budget. Mm-hmm. They hire me. And 20 years old, I moved to Paris. And I'm in a show, and it's a big hit. And uh, when it comes to the summer, my brother gets out of high school. Right. Uh, and he, it's a bizarre thing. I don't know if there's such a thing as past lives. But he had no musical training, not even any musical interest. Didn't go to concerts, didn't have a record collection. We give him a guitar. A month later, he could pick out a Django Reinhardt solo. We give him a violin. A month later, he could do the Step and Grappelli accompaniment. So the director of the company, Jerome Savary, later became the head of the French National Theater. We've got Peter Brook from the Royal Shakespeare Company, executive producer 
but the violinist is from the Paris Opera, can't deviate from the score. Some people <laughs> in the group like to improvise. Danny could follow anything. Okay. So he aces out the guy from the Paris Opera, <laughs> and he plays with us for a summer, and then he goes off to Africa. <laughs> but anyway, the rest is history. Oh, I mean, you say it's history, but I think I find your origin story fascinating. Um, so how long were you, were you personally in Paris for? Three years. And you were performing in all that, throughout that whole three years? It was, a, yeah, yeah, the show was a, a huge hit. And then, uh, I, I don't look like it because I'm ugly now, but I, I, I modeled and did commercials. And then... Uh, the French record companies would give me French singers. Right. Uh, and, and the French, I love the culture, but they can't do rock and roll if their life <laughs> depended on it. So they'd give me a French singer, I'd take them to London and put a session together uh -huh. with English musicians okay. who could play rock and roll. Uh, and then, uh, oh, I'm so cool, you can play the rock now. <laughs> you know, so I, I worked every day. And I have a French son who lives in Los Angeles now. He's got away from it all. Mm -hmm. um, so at what point did the Mystic Knights of the Ongo Boingo come around? Okay, so I'm in this French theater company, Jerome Savare, brilliant guy, drunk. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, I decided I wanted my own company. So I came back to L.A. and I started the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo. In L.A.? In L.A. Okay. Uh, my brother, I got him back from Africa, became the musical director. Uh -huh. And then the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo, kind of 12 players, eventually to survive, had to go to eight players and be a rock band, which became Oingo Boingo. Of course. But that's going to be a huge chunk of your, you know, your creative history, which I think is, it's one of the things I find deeply frustrating over the years is actually trying to find out more about the Mystic Knights, because for me, the, the, the kind of the jump on point was Forbidden Zone. And you see this, 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 this visual representation of this theatrical group, which thanks to the DVDs and Blu-rays and everything else, we get a little taster of, you've, you've develop those special features which gives us little snapshots of what your theatrical um, sort of group was coming from but where where were you drawing influence from and in, in creating that well in, in well first of all the mystic knights of the oingo boingo was very much commedia dell'arte okay. and my rule was nothing contemporary so we either took things from the past that people couldn't hear live anymore. Duke Ellington, uh -huh. Cab Calloway, uh, Josephine Baker, or completely crazy avant-garde things that my brother Danny Elfman was composing, <laughs> but nothing contemporary. So as the group was shifting into Oingo Boingo from 12 players to eight, mm -hmm. uh, and going from Commedia dell'arte to rock, mm -hmm. I wanted to just capture my stage show. Mm -hmm. And that's all Forbidden Zone was was capturing my stage show on film. I had no idea what I was going to do commercially with it. But it wasn't your first touch of, of sort of having a, a filmed audience either? Um, I, no, I didn't know anything about film. I was a stage director. I didn't clear the music rights, uh, went bankrupt, lost my house. Uh, it was a bizarre thing. Uh, very politically incorrect. Uh, with arson threats in theaters, K 
kicked off com college campuses disappeared after a summer and uh, then just disappeared. And then it was like 15 years later, I put up my first website mm. and I got a, tens of thousands of hits from all over the world. And I guess it had been bootlegged on college campuses. And I was surprised with its popularity. And ironically, it's more popular now than it was then. And every month I'm flown to a different city mm -hmm. and I've got a line around the block of millennials to see it. And I put on a live, a live show mm -hmm. beforehand. So you had I'm and barbecue after. <laughs> we have fucking fun, man. <laughs> we know how to fun. Uh, we have too much fun. Having just had a taste of one of your barbecues, I have to say that that for me would be a selling point for any screening that you would do. Uh, yep, yep. Please, uh, I'll have a Richard Elfman barbecue as well as a film. That's, that's absolutely fine. Um, you had no idea that it had built up the cult following between 1980 when the film. No, was it disappeared. I had no idea. It was Speaking a surprise. As far as you were concerned. Yeah, yeah. It was a bizarre thing. Like, I, I put up a website, and suddenly I get all these things from all over the world. And where the fuck did they see it? It must have been bootlegged, because I certainly didn't make a dime from it. Uh-huh. I only recently, the last year or so, got the full rights to it back. Uh-huh. But it took that long. It took that long. Uh, I kind of want to get into that stuff maybe a little bit after. I So... Weirdly, the, your film fits into a number of different films that we've kind of been talking about on the show over the last couple of years. Um, I'm a big fan of Rocky Horror. Mm -hmm. um, By the I, way, I've got local Rocky Horror shoops, troops yeah. I've been doing Forbidden Zone on Friday nights. Well, this is what and I, I hear. I, I perform in them. Um, one of the one as, of the, as the devil. You, you perform in them. Uh, oh, so you take. That's, that was Danny's character in the film, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah so and, and I do it live as the devil. <laughs> If there wasn't incentive enough to come to LA to to watch a Forbidden Zone screening, um, yeah, I'm sorry we don't have one going up while you're here. This so week. am I. <laughs> you have to come back. I will, uh, or, or we'll go to Belfast and do one. Even better, you heard that, listeners. Um, so I'm, I mean, I am a big Rocky Horror fan, and I have a love hate relationship with the sort of the shadow casts. Um, we talked earlier on in the series about a film called The Room, which you may be aware of. It's kind of the worst film that's ever been made, arguably shot here in LA. Is it a I, bit I saw, of a cult I, favorite? No, actually, I, I, I saw it, not the original, uh -huh. but I saw the one about it. Okay, the disaster artist. The disaster artist. I, I, I enjoyed that very much. Okay, yeah, yeah it's a great, great film. Uh, so my, my, my colleague Rachel be, is, is, is a big kind of fan of the room itself, and I, I, me and Ben can't, can't stand it. Sorry, Rachel, we've, we've talked about it again. Um, but it strikes me that this sort of fits into that, that kind of cycle of films that have actually developed some sort of cult following. And there is an interactive um, sort of fandom around it as well that, that, that must be quite a curious... So for somebody who was completely removed from it for 15 years, that had no idea that there was this cult following that was building up, what did that feel like to come back into it after all that time? Well, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for that. But <laughs> yes. we had... I didn't know my brother was Mozart, so I was lucky to have that score, uh -huh. along with Cab Calloway sure. and Josephine Baker and these other artists that are timeless greats. Yeah. Uh, Chicago had a better production value. I've got better music. 
Did I read rightly that Cab Calloway was one of the ones you actually approached and um, was very it was, easy it was to very deal with? It was very gracious. It was some of the other people that you didn't speak to that actually no, caused no, no, the problems. No, no, no. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. I didn't clear the music rights. But you had enough sense. I, to I to lost my house. But you had the sense to go to Cap Calloway and say, "Can we use your your?" Song? Well, this was this was after the fact. Okay. The film was already done, and now I do. We have to clear the music. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't know what the fuck. Oh, what was I? I, I saw you say. Um, you pointed. Was it was it the the union came to you about it, and you pointed out that actually the union at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The actually... union, yeah, the union came for money, and I said you didn't even allow black people into the union when this was done. Fuck you. <laughs> So I'm trying to get my head around what it actually feels like to produce something to... I mean, I assume for a point you must have put it to one side and carried on with the rest of your career, but to then discover that actually there is a huge following for it and there is a huge amount of appreciation and respect and, and love. What does that feel as an artist? Oh, it, it was gratifying, even after the fact, decades uh-huh. later. Uh, you know, and, and now we're... You know, I, I'm just wrapping hipsters, gangsters, aliens, and geeks. Mm-hmm. And then my next project will be Forbidden Zone 2. Forbidden Zone 2, okay. So Which f- I'll probably just call Forbidden Zone again. Where they do the, do the Halloween? Yeah, yeah. Not, not that every other Halloween film is just called Halloween. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Figure out. <laughs> um, so Forbidden Zone itself, uh, in terms of production, that was your first feature film? It was my first film anything. So you started that, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you started that as a 16 mil project that was going to be somewhat shorter and experimental? Yeah, we kind of did that. And then some friends convinced me, okay, you can blow up the 16 and just shoot another 10 minutes and you've got a feature length thing. Uh-huh. But then we shot the other 10 minutes and it looked much better than the 16. So I ended up reshooting all the 16, but with certain different actors. Okay. Uh, then I was lucky to get Susan Terrell and Hervé Villages. Okay. A lot of the people that you're working with are people that you worked on with Mystic Knights. Right right now? No, they they were at the time, the people that you worked with on Forbidden Zone. Yeah, yeah, all the Mystic Knights are in the film. So does that make things a little... And, and they, they did the soundtrack. Did that make things easier in terms of production? Well, I didn't have to pay them, so yeah, that was easier. <laughs> uh, words to any independent filmmakers ears. <laughs> Although I fed them You fed them I always feed my cast and crew well, I think it helps I feed them well I've, I've worked on shoots And uh, you know the one thing that extras talk about Is the food, the catering I, I personally cook at the end of every week See. We're, we're talking like 10 pound whole salmons on cedar boards <laughs> And big pieces of lamb marinated with rosemary and balsamic and chunks of big garlic I, I can and, tell. and wine from the Rhone Valley and boxes of cigars. No, no, we, we have fun. I can tell you HBO... We definitely have fun. HBO have never fed me like that. Oh. for them. <laughs> BBC have been slightly better, but never mm. like that. <laughs> you produce for Bin Zone, um, and it is a... It's a representation on film of the stuff that you're doing on stage. It's basically the, my stage show of the Mystic Knights and the Oingo Boingo. Okay. That's what Forbidden Zone was. But there's something else going on with it. It's not just a it's not just a straight lift from theater to, to film. There there is a it is cinematic. 
it is creative in a different different way and you must have been aware of that at the time that you were doing something that was well I, I'm a surrealist okay and I enjoyed moving the camera okay moving the camera you get other dimensions that you can't get on stage so this is what I'm interested in is, is sort of your surrealist leanings yeah. because I think it's fairly clear that you you have one head one part of your head in a completely different yeah there's something about stage where you've got that live feeling you know mm sense the audience but film you can move a camera mm -hmm. you know you've got all these dimensions you can do and, and so the imagination can do more so what's your relationship like between you and your cinematographer how much is that that, that is you and how much that's them and how well, much I, it's the collaboration for forbidden zone one I, I had a guy greg sandor who would actually it was an older guy had shot black and white mm -hmm. uh and he, he, he we had like a really good negative and I, my original intention was to have all the stuff in the Forbidden Zone colorized in China, mm -hmm. kind of a technique they did with hand tinting in mm -hmm. the 1920s. But I went bankrupt long before I could do that. <laughs> but then years later, it was like eight years ago, <laughs> uh, a company came to me and offered to colorize it, mm -hmm. which is actually closer to my original vision. Mm -hmm. The Don't watch the black and white, watch the colorized. That's closer to my original vision so this is again this is one of the things i find fascinating is this revisiting of, of a work that you have done so obviously as the director as the, as the guy who creates this film um your word really should be final in terms of how one should view it but when i came to forbidden zone the first time it was through that black and white version and i loved it have you seen the colorized i've seen the colorized version and that, that's actually closer to my vision yeah and I, I i i do like sort of i mean i watch a bit of colorized cinema um but there is something about that black and white yeah but you're you're a you're a film historian so, <laughs> yeah. so uh, i'm dealing with a, <laughs> and an alfred hitchcock fan <laughs> uh, it's good shot in color as well um <laughs> yeah yeah no well no no he he hmm. He crossed both sides of the line. He did. Um, How do you like that scotch, by the way? It, it's, it's lovely. I'd never pay for this, but someone brought it here. So what are we drinking? Um, for the benefit of our listeners, we are drinking the Aberlour scotch and, and smoking some... What, what are the cigars that we're, we're, we're smoking? I'm smoking a Punch Grand Cru. Okay. And you're smoking a, a Chow Moontrance. Okay. Uh, I, I feel our listeners will. <laughs> As I say, this is it's perhaps the most surreal um, podcast I've ever had to record. Literally, uh, as I sit here, we're looking out onto the houses in the Hollywood Hills. Um, Mr. Richard Elfman has already cooked me a, a very fine barbecue dinner. It's <laughs> not serving me uh, scotch and scotch. It was a, a three inch thick prime ribeye cowboy steak. <laughs> That we cooked directly over the fucking mesquite, <laughs> primitive teatral, and uh, red and yellow peppers, <laughs> onions, asparagus, uh, and baked goat's cheese. An Not bad. Absolutely lovely. Um, I feel very privileged tonight. I'm very grateful. Do, do you need more rocks, sir? Uh, yeah, I probably do. Uh, yeah. You just go with your hands. <laughs> Yeah, of all the um, <laughs> of all the people I wanted to talk to, whenever we started doing the show, um, one of the directors that I wanted to talk to was yourself. 
because I love that that blend of different styles and influences that comes into into that film. It is something that that has managed to transgress time, and actually because it has built up an audience after the fact, you know, it mm-hmm. didn't find its real home in 1980. It found its home in the decade subsequently. So it is a, a film that probably is. It's a film that's probably cleverer, that's smarter, that that's better, maybe than it would have been appreciated than, than actually I think initial audiences might have thought. Well, I was. It's. Uh, I'm trying to think of the new Beverly Theater. Uh, Quentin Tarantino owns it now. <laughs> I was there with the there were arson threats, and we all had to leave, and the fire department came. <laughs> it's it, it's a censorship always exists in so, different forms, and uh, it we have it very strong now in the U.S. Okay. With, the, with these like politically correct cultural warriors. So why do people want to ban your film? Well. Artists have always been censored, mm-hmm. and the censors always think they're so fucking self-righteous. Mm. And right now, I, you know, we have these snowflake, political correct, whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I mean, I know that you, you've, you've talked a bit about it um, in other interviews, where you, the allegations or the, the sort of the questions have been asked about the the representation of sexuality and color within the film yeah. uh, something we do on the show is we, we do talk about this stuff so I have to to mention it um, so for instance you have transgender characters which mm-hmm. in itself actually I think it's, in some respects is, is really quite advanced mm-hmm. there's not a lot of films I can think of um, well, of that area okay here's how it works okay so the film comes out and the main gay press like the advocate mm-hmm. well they made very derisive kind of a fun of, of, of the gay characters. But then the underground gay press loved it. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> the biggest kind of fan base of the film, or one of the biggest, are, are, are in the gay community, uh-huh. which shows that the, the homos are not homogenous. <laughs> Absolutely. And, 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 and in terms of the sort of representation of, of sort of color, I think... Well, I... I, 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 everything was a human cartoon. Mm-hmm. If if I could do it again, I probably wouldn't have done the blackface stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I've, I've done an, an essay on it. Yeah, you have. Uh, but at the time, it was just kind of a surreal, everything was made fun of, uh, everything was a cartoon. I don't have a racist cell in my being. Mm-hmm. Uh, the... Jewish moneylender, people accused me of anti-Semitism. It was my grandfather, Herman Bernstein, just acting naturally. <laughs> <laughs> and they accused me of anti-Semitism. <laughs> you know, so, you know, what do you do? do you, you just say, like, fuck you. <laughs> do, you do you find that difficult, though, as, as, as sort of, obviously, subsequent generations have come in and they've discovered this film, and some of them have loved it instinctively? And some of them obviously have come on with their, their, their sort of film theorist heads and they've gone, well, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. How much of that is difficult for you? How much of it are you able to remember and say, look, this is how we were culturally at that time? And it's, is this indeed a product of its generation or is it Well, one, one of the, the one who played Squeeze at Henderson, Matthew Bright, brilliant director, mm. directed Freeway, uh, wrote Gun Crazy, Broke. Reese Witherspoon broke Drew Barrymore mm-hmm. as actresses. 
little guy, big mouth, skinheads, mouths off. Uh-huh. Someone pulls a 45. My Fairweather friends are running up the street. Uh-huh. I put myself between Matthew and the gun and stop the shooting. I've been pulled out of a car in Crenshaw uh-huh. by a gang and stomped on. I'm not worried about what a few snowflakes are saying. <laughs> I, the, it, it's, it's a conversation that we keep on having on, on this program in terms of uh, perception. And I think one of the things that a lot of people forget to do is actually talk to people who worked in the era. Mm-hmm. So for all the, the, the sort of, it's not liberalization, but for all the kind of awareness that we have now about different issues, and whether it be about sexuality or about color or anything else, um, part of the problem is that we tend to sort of look at things historically through a modern perspective, which is fine, but you forget that in 1980, the world was a very different world. Yeah, there are things I would have done differently now than I would have done then. I, I, I probably would not have done the blackface stuff mm-hmm. just because I, I, I wasn't trying to hurt or offend anybody. Mm-hmm. It was just pure artistic creation. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's 40 years ago. It is. Well, look, I mean, uh, the, as, a, <laughs> as a kid growing up in the 1980s in, in, in the UK, I mean, those sort of images were not unfamiliar. So, I mean, for me, like, it, it does seem very much part and parcel of its era. Now, you, you have toted a, a sequel to this. Yeah, I don't have any blackface in Britain. <laughs> so. That's deliberate. Uh, although it's funny, like, it, it's, with these politically correct rules, you can make fun of Swedes or Germans or English or Irish. <laughs> just, just not, just, just not any uh, of ethnic. Yeah, yeah, it's like, fuck the snowflakes, Jesus Christ. Uh-huh. I, I, I'm... When I do art, it's I, I'm aiming for posterity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, is the film that you do is it more from an art-based mentality, or is it commercial? an art? Yeah, yeah, it's an art-based mentality. Uh-huh. Although I'm not trying to be pretentious. No. Uh, but it strikes me as someone who who made this this fantastic, really interesting film that <clears throat> that almost got ignored for for 15 years um, you can't have built a career based on commercialism at that point there must have been some other driving force I'm trying to think I've done a lot of theater uh-huh. music events I've done a couple and four or five films not my own uh-huh. you know as a hired gut done some television and I, I, I just recently did a film, Hipsters, Gangsters, Aliens, and Geeks. That's only the second time that I've done my own material, not being a hired gun. So how did that I, come about? I, I couldn't be more pleased with the way this is coming out. My brother's written some amazing music for it, and it, it was uh, just like God blessed me <laughs> with the right cast and the right crew. Uh-huh. Uh, Hipsters, gangsters, aliens, and geeks. And then next, we're doing Forbidden Zone 2. So let's talk about hipsters, gangsters, aliens, and geeks. Where did that come from? See that little room right there? This little room is having it. Yeah, I wrote it in three weeks with, uh, I think, six bottles of scotch and a box of cigars. <laughs> <laughs> no, no kind of driving force, just you felt like 
like writing it? Just pure creativity. Okay. Although it has the zaniness of Forbidden Zone, uh-huh. but a professional cast. And uh, oh, Forbidden Zone had a professional cast as well. Let's be fair. No, no, half professional, half completely amateur off the streets. Okay. Uh, this was a. I had a great ensemble. I had a. My son Bodie Elfman, mm-hmm. married to Jenna Elfman, Dharma, Dharma and Greg. Mm-hmm. She's on Fear of the Walking Dead. But if you look at his IMDb, he's got a hundred credits. Uh, and then I had French Stewart from Third Rock of the Sun, uh, George Went from Cheers, uh-huh. uh, Steve G from the Sarah Silverman Show, uh, Nick Novicki, the brilliant little person from Boardwalk Empire. Uh-huh. God, who did I have? Vern Troyer. Well, I was going to say, I was going to ask you about Vern Troyer. You had Vern Troyer. And must have oh, he was amazing. One of his last films, it must be. It was his last film. Okay. Yeah, very tragic. Uh, but he was great to work with. Uh, it was, uh, there were things physically difficult that he insisted on doing himself. Uh-huh. And then he just was great with the rest of the cast. So... I was really tempted when I was, I was sort of making notes for what we could talk about tonight. And one of the things that kind of struck me was the there's a certain parallel between Hervé and, and Forbidden Zone and, and Vern Troyer and, and Hipsters. Wait till you see Nick Novicki. Really? Fucking star. Am I going to forget well, Vern? Well, he was, I, 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 if you're familiar with Boardwalk Empire, he was the key little person okay. that did all the scenes with Steve Buscemi. Right. Okay, those guys don't fuck around with their casting. <laughs> and uh, I met him at a party, and then I saw him at a comedy store. Uh-huh. And my God, the guy's got acting chops, and he's a comedian. <laughs> uh, and he just, oh my God, he was so great. Uh-huh. Uh, and he, <laughs> he's got a sense of humor, <laughs> even when we tossed him through a window <laughs> or threw him onto the roof of a car. Is it as surreal as Forbidden Zone? It's as more surreal. Is that where your heart lies in, in that kind of... I'm a surrealist. Well, okay. I'm an entertainer. And I'm a surrealist. Okay. Uh, and I like to have fun. Mm-hmm. And I, I like to entertain an audience. Mm-hmm. So how come it's taken you nearly 40 years to do something else that was all you? Well, I've, I mean, it was I've a, thrown the head of a studio into a swimming pool at a black tie party, uh-huh. and I, and I, I've had a card for Hollywood like knock on no door, suck on no dick, you know. So I guess I haven't played the regular game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Again, no offense to my friends who do suck on dicks. <laughs> it's all okay. Forget it's all good. To to, yeah. It's all good. <laughs> but based on the conversations I've had today, just getting to here, <laughs> this does not seem completely unusual. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of interested in you. You know, it, it, it's easy for us to kind of go with the A, B, C. And look, this is the project I've done. This is what 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 I want to do. Um, but I am intrigued by this kind of th- what makes you use it as a kind of filmmaker or as a creative. I mean, do you see yourself first and foremost as a filmmaker or 
Are you something else? How do you describe yourself to people? Well, I've, I've had a... God, I've had such a bizarre upbringing and not a normal life. Uh-huh. And I, I, I can only tell you this after all these scotches and wine that we've been drinking. But I, I don't have a lot of fear of death or arrest. Uh-huh. I've had two art-related felonies. Right. Can you talk I, about these? <laughs> yeah, one of them was just getting a crew paid. We, we took his work print. That was felony extortion. I beat it. Uh-huh. And the other one was just pure art. Uh, I, I, I'm a writer. I'm a columnist. I, I've written food and wine and entertainment uh-huh. for 30 years. And I had a disagreement with a publisher. It was, uh, I'm covering the best bars going down the coast right. of what food they have at the bars. Then he goes to Hawaii and goes to some meditation thing and comes back. I, I've got an editor. Do you mind if she edits your article? And I said, you know, does she have a, a sense? Yeah, we've got a natural sense. She hadn't edited anything. Okay, so she rewrites my first car- my first paragraph. Sure. Don't publish the thing. So I run into him a week later. Hey, what's the matter? You know, my work's always a little salty. And now, now he's now a vegan, whatever. Well, I find your lifestyle disgusting. And it, it He said hurt. that to you? Yeah, and it hurt me to the heart. And I couldn't sleep all night. So then I rewrote the article a little bit saltier. Ladies and gentlemen, not meaning to offend, but leaving Michael's restaurant after just a few hors d'oeuvres is like pulling your dick out of a tight, wet pussy. Okay, so... I, uh, it was like a 11 by 17, you know, with these yuppie West Side magazines. So I had it printed on the same paper. And then, uh, okay, oh, this is an Irish thing. Okay, too. Okay, so I, I, I'm writing, I'm a food and wine columnist. And there's this uh, Irish au couture restaurant a block from their warehouse. Mm-hmm. So I, I bring a crew and I get them drunk on Irish food and Irish whiskey and I play Irish revolutionary music. And then we go and break into the warehouse and it's 50,000 copies. I've got a moving van and I actually have the local underground paper with photographers and a lawyer down the street. And I take 50,000 copies, put them in the moving van and it's all photographed. And uh, I leave a a note in the warehouse that says that the magazine has been requisitioned by the Los Angeles <laughs> Gorilla Restaurant Critics Underground. <laughs> so they didn't even realize that it had been stolen. No one saw the note. You know, just okay, went to, so I, I have my thing inserted, you know, when you get the Sunday Times and you see the advertisements. Uh-huh. It's taking place and I haven't taken to newsstands. <laughs> and, <laughs> The shit hits the fan. And then, uh, for me, it's felony grand theft. (laughs) So, uh, anyway, the publisher, he's got a cable show. And I've got all this stuff. I haven't signed releases. I get a a temporary restraining order to shut his show down. And he has to drop the charges. Then I let the press run it. They call it grand theft (laughs) Ardo. 
and his circulation goes through the roof because we had it at newsstands. Anyway, that uh, three months later, we're friends again, and we're friends to this day. And I'm writing articles for him after that. But that anyway, that was my second art-related felony. So what I get, from, <laughs> <laughs> what I get from that, that story is, is you are basically an artist. Well, pretentiously answering your question, sir. Yes. I like to think so. <laughs> but, you, I mean, uh, how much of what you... So the, the reality, I think, for most people... Un, I hope that most people understand that the reality of the film business is that ultimately you need to turn a profit. That, that, that's the... For most people... We're in, we're in the middle of Hollywood. Most of the Hollywood filmmakers are either hey, trying see, to turn okay, a profit... You see or, the, that building there and that building there? Yes. We lean a little this way. I, uh, you see that one there? Yeah. Okay. That one paid for your dinner, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that one I lost to a five-year media project. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> it's all good. I mean, I, 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 I'm blessed with a great family. Uh -huh. I'm working. Uh, things are going well. I've got a great film coming out, and then Forbidden Zone too. I love your honesty. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I just find it refreshing because there's this is Hollywood. This is the film industry. There's a lot of bullshit that gets passed around. Um, there's a lot of people. Are you kidding? There's so much bullshit. <laughs> you it, it's not like any other industry. It's like like with cars they know how to build cars but here it's like moths attracted to a flame <laughs> and they, it's like these players and it's like they aren't there for art but they can't get the table or they can't get the bimbo uh -huh. unless they insert themselves between the artist and the money <laughs> <laughs> you know this i know this what worries me is that the vast majority of people who have any notion at all about the film industry do not know this because they've no experience of it. They haven't worked within the industry. They they watch it on TV. They see it in documentaries. They read about it in books or gossip columnists. Um, and their vision of what Hollywood is and what the film industry is is a very, very different thing from the reality of it. So for someone like you to come along and actually say these things, it is actually refreshing. <laughs> um, I think you are fairly honest about it. Um, and I do get the impression from, from what I've seen of your stuff that that there is something that's a bit more artisan than the average filmmaker. Well, thank you. Most filmmakers are, are basically, they're trying to turn a buck. You know, they, they, they basically need to make their money back. Unless it's a tax dodge, in which case you need to lose all your money as quickly as possible. Um, it strikes me that you're not trying to lose all your money as quickly as possible. You actually care about the work that you're doing and you are trying to create something that that is more to your vision. And I don't know if that's well, that's praise I should be keeping on you. I'm blessed with hipsters, gangsters, aliens and geeks actually has, we only had like a quarter of the money we needed uh -huh. and we're almost done. Almost done. Okay. My brother's written amazing music for it. Uh -huh. uh, but film sales and distributor companies are chasing us right now. Okay. Uh, because it's entertaining. It's entertaining. What what I, I saw about it, um, through the, the stuff that you've sent me. Oh, like I'll, I'll, I'll play you some in a bit. Oh, it looks pretty good. Uh, oh, wait till you see Danny Danny's music to the rocket ships and 
Vern Troyer and all these things. Uh, so but, look, you've you've got a you've got an audience out here who knew nothing about this film. Uh, tell them about it. Spend it to them. Hipsters, gangsters, aliens, and geeks. As if that title uh, enough <laughs> is enough to okay. get you. Out of work actor wakes up with the key to the universe stuck up his ass. <laughs> And that's just the beginning. <laughs> and it moves. Okay. It moves. <laughs> Beautiful heroine. Uh-huh. Uh, cross-dressing brother. Uh, gangsters. Aliens. Uh-huh. Clowns from outer space. <laughs> Boy, have we got clowns from outer space. Ferd <laughs> Troyer, two foot eight, wants to be the emperor of the universe. <laughs> Danny Elfman has given this kid some music (laughs) (laughs) to empower him. I'm in already. You don't have to sell to me. (laughs) (laughs) And after this, where do you go? Forbidden Zone 2. Forbidden Zone 2. Is that something you definitely want to do? It's my bucket list film. Mm. How long has that been your bucket list film for? Uh, Forever. But but anyway, it's... uh, not just the script. We've got the budget. We've everything is all set up. Mm-hmm. It's ready to go, and it, it's uh, it looks like the funding is there. Okay. Is that is that a difficult thing? I mean, do you feel that Forbidden Zone is an alb, you know, is a noose around your neck in some ways, or are you happy with that association? Got a noose around my deck, neck, uh, prophylactic around my dick. I don't know. <laughs> That's what I like. A prophylactic keeps you safe. <laughs> Not having one is probably Actually, a bad idea. It was uh, it was fucking without a prophylactic. <laughs> I mean, it's it, it's a film. I mean, do, do you feel pressure at all from the fan base or? I don't. Well, again, I don't often get the chance to ask a, people like that. I I I, 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 I don't have normal fear of death or arrest. Okay, so it's. The only reason I'm not getting arrested right now mm-hmm. is not out of any fear. It's like a rational decision that, okay, I, I, I just want to do these things and don't want distractions. Mm-hmm. No, no, I, I, I don't worry at all about negative forces. So it's about what you want to do. It's about yeah, yeah, your, your yeah. kind of vision for what yeah, 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 you want yeah, to do. Yeah. And, and it doesn't take a genius to kind of look and go, hipsters... Aliens, gangsters, geeks, and, and, and Forbidden Zone 2. There's clearly something that's a little bit... I'm going to say left field, but that would be quite a, a well, safe no, no, way of putting no, no, it. No, no, These, it's, it's balls out. Yeah. <laughs> balls out entertainment. Which doesn't sound that far removed from what you were doing with Mystic Nights. Mystic Nights, the people that saw it live never forgot it. Uh-huh. Uh, these were um, amazing shows. I found a group on Facebook this week. Um, I hadn't looked before, I guess, but I found a group where they're they're literally sharing every little bit of information they can find about those people who have seen Mystic Nights back in the day. Um, So clearly it left an impression. The work that you did within that was so far out there and it left a legacy. And it's not because that became... Ultimately, that became you know, this, this internationally very successful pop group. It's because because they're not talking about the internationally successful pop group. They're not talking about Oingo Boingo. They're talking about you and that, that work and that 
the, the Mystic Knights itself is an entity, and that that creativity and that surrealism. Um, I don't don't know entirely where I'm going with this, but I guess I think I'm projecting. I guess I think for me to know that would make me feel quite good about what I'd done, but also make me very aware about that's maybe where my head was at, and I get the impression that's maybe where your head's at, isn't that? That's a bit different. I'm creating for the moment. For the moment, okay. So, so I'm not quite thinking of that. Okay. I'm just creating for the moment. Okay. You, you know, the joy of creation, and I love entertaining people. Okay. Are you influenced by what you've done? Influences? Yeah, I mean... In, in oh, no, no, of course. Uh, God, Stravinsky, Prokofiev, Max Fleischer. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, the list. What about film? I mean, were your film influences? Hitchcock, Scorsese. I would say Tim Burton, but he was influenced by me more than <laughs> I him. Uh, Those are books uh, we don't and, get every and, day. And, and, and I think he's a genius, by the way. He's a genius. Uh, no, no, of course, artists are always influenced by other artists. They are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we, we were talking very recently about um, Melier mm-hmm. and there is part of me that sees you I, I can see Melier and you sitting quite comfortably pretty close to each other up on that, that little pedestal of, of sort of surrealist wonder you know you're creating these other it's, it's not just about this visual landscape but it's about actually trying to push the medium because I think what you do with film is that theatrical sensibility that you took from the Mystic Knights and those live stage performances, but you are doing something that's completely different and that is very definitely cinematic. I don't know how much that's deliberate and how much it's not. Looking at you, looking a little bit baffled right now, I'm still not sure that you're no. <laughs> well, I've been recently influenced by Isadora Duncan. Okay. Okay. <laughs> she couldn't fucking dance. <laughs> It's so stupid and ridiculous. She had like three moves uh-huh. with kind of a kick forward and her arms out. And you're going to see some of it in Forbidden Zone 2. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, on the other hand, it's I, I have people from Cirque du Soleil uh-huh. that are helping me with my aerial choreography. And my wife, Anastasia Elfman, uh-huh. 25 years as a ballet dancer since she was four years old and now you know how old she is oh you do you, you, you told me what she wouldn't tell me earlier oh you know she's gonna listen into this <laughs> since she was four uh an amazing choreographer uh but anyway anyway mm-hmm. and jenna elfman's gonna be soaring through the sky doing um uh, uh the ballet of the chicken okay it's uh, <laughs> Petunia has a pet chicken, <laughs> and Pa's a circus geek. I'm playing Pa, <laughs> and uh, Pa says, Pa's got to put food on the table. No, Pa, don't kill my chicken. <laughs> <laughs> and he bites the chicken's head off. <laughs> And then kisses his daughter with his bloody lips. And 
she runs out to hang herself and the chicken spirit from the sky rescues her <laughs> and then Jenna with the help of Cirque du Soleil does ballet of the chicken which puts the dying swan to shame <laughs> I, 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 yeah I'm sorry already, I, mean, I was already sold because it's you Pa, uh, <laughs> don't kill my chicken. And the chicken's talking in a human voice. No, no, no. <laughs> and I, I, I'm playing Pa. And I wanted to bite the check, the, the head off a real live chicken, just for the theatricality of it. I actually wanted to do it at a PETA convention. But my wife's a vegetarian and won't let me do it. So we have to do this with effects. I'm pretty sure that they can <laughs> they put certain restrictions on your film if yeah. you do that. But it would be great. I, I wanted to go to a PETA thing with a cigar and a jet bottle of Jack Daniels and take a chicken out of his sack and bite its head off. <laughs> As pure theater. But she, my wife won't let me. <laughs> She's a vegetarian. You, you're, you're, <laughs> and I love her. <laughs> you are still a performer. I, I mean, it's very clear from the. So we had a long, we had a bit of a conversation before we recorded this tonight, and it's very clear from your conversation with me that you, you're, you still lie within that that performance world. Mm -hmm. That you still love it, and that you still get a kick out of being on stage. And yeah, and yeah, yeah. Lines. What took you then towards the other side of the the stage? You mean film? Well, what 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 took you from from? I mean, the the switch from being a performer to being someone who's behind the camera or you well, know, directing. The, okay, or, okay, nothing compares to the stage. No. But you could do the most perfect thing. Mm. Just have perfection, and then it fades in people's minds. You put it on film, you get hit by a truck the next day, and it'll be there for a thousand years. Uh -huh. And there's something about that. Plus, I mean, obviously with a camera, you can do so many things that you can't do through a proscenium. Sure. So it's about legacy. Yeah, yeah. Well, not just that. It's just the movement of the camera. Oh. And editing, you know, it's, uh, they're both great. Uh -huh. But they're different. If someone asks you, so if someone asked you to spend the next, say, 10 years of your life, next five years of your life, doing only one thing or the other, what should it be? Would you want to perform or would you want to direct? Both. Both. You can only do one. God, that would be a terrible thing. It's like, uh, do you want to be celibate or do you want to eat well? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it, probably film. Because it was, an, it was a bit of advice. Uh, no, 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 but I... I, I'll, I'll never stop doing live theater. Mm -hmm. And even with the films, like with Hipsters, Gangsters, Aliens, and Geeks, mm. my band Mambo Demonico with Anastasia Elfman choreographing and doing burlesque, we're going to be doing live performances with theatrical screenings. How did the, the, the live group come about? Pardon me? How did the, the live group come about? So Mambo, Mambo Demonico. Oh, okay, so... Anastasia's in this group, uh, Force of Nature Productions, it's a theater company. Uh, so they ask me to do something, so I write a play. And in the play, I write, there's this quirky musical group. Mm. And so for the actual play, we put a group together with 
Eagle Plum Guerrero, mm -hmm. who's doing the score with Danny on Hipsters. So we put a band together for the live play. Okay. And then the band stays together. Hmm. And we're playing right now. You enjoy that? Oh, I love it. And, what, and, and you're done? No, no, I, I, I play Latin percussion. Back, no, no, back, I, I love it. Back to where you started. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're, we're, we're playing right now. I, I love being in a band. Would, would you rather do that than the whole film and theater? If everything else fell apart, I'd still be happy if I just Play played music. in a band. <laughs> I, wanna, I, I have to ask about working with siblings because... So, on this show, my brother um, often... It's usually our sound and our engineer guy. He can't be in America right now. Mm -hmm. So, I'm left to... Whatever, whatever mess you're listening to right now, listeners, is my fault and not his. Um... But it's kind of a weird situation actually working with one's brother. How do you find working with yours and, and actually all your extended family? Wait, I need you to put some ice in your glass. Oh, okay. I, I thought I had tongs. It's like, I don't know who gave this to me, but it cost like 60 bucks. Don't tell me that. <laughs> oh, it terrible. I know, I know. I had, uh, I had one very drunken night in London on very expensive uh, whiskey <laughs> that somebody else is paying for. And it made me, I still have guilt to this day. Uh, so, uh, cheers. <laughs> no, I don't, I, I don't spend this much for it. <laughs> okay, so... I'll send you a bottle of Paris when I get home. <laughs> uh, no, I, I mean, I love Danny, and I, I couldn't get along better with him, and it's just, I, I'm blessed. Uh -huh. You know, it's like my little brother's Mozart... Mm -hmm. uh, by the way, I mean, he, he just did this violin concerto. We're going Thursday to hear it live. Mm -hmm. uh, he's doing a lot of classical music. But uh, no, it's just a blessing, uh, you know, that I, I have this resource. Mm -hmm. You know, and he's been great, you know, giving me music for hipsters. He still works with you quite happily. I mean, I was, yeah. I was reading, um, reading some old interviews with him, and he does seem to look at it very much like okay big brother's calling yeah of course i'll work with him i don't pay him as much as disney <laughs> uh, <laughs> or tim no doubt no no he's uh he just got uh i can't tell you no uh his next one i think he's getting close to two million uh, i paid him two dollars <laughs> <laughs> My brother will but, probably but, but, listen but, to this but, at some point. No, no, but, no, no, it's but, okay. But, 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 I still love you. I, I cook at his barbecues. <laughs> okay, so there we go. There you go. Yeah, yeah it's a payoff. But you, you know, it, it's one of those things when you work with your your, your family, it can also it, it can be um, fractious. It can be difficult. But you don't find no. that problem at all, do you? Not, not at all. Well, so you're working with your kids I, I, in here. Well, I, first of all, Anastasia Elfman and I, she did like five parts in Hipsters. Sure. And she also did makeup, stunt driving, mm -hmm. uh, all all these things, like anything that was needed. Uh, my older son, Bodie Elfman, was the lead. Mm -hmm. A dream to work with. Couldn't be more professional. Mm -hmm. uh, 100 IMDb credits. I want to mention that before. Yeah. Danny, no, we, we all get along. Yeah. I'm very blessed to have the family that I have. And you're not picking them because it saves you money. You're picking them because they actually have the talent. I think my brother's got the talent. And I know my son does, and my wife certainly does. Apparently. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've, I've heard of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So. 
Yeah. <laughs> I won't tell you which of the products I bought. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah it's, uh, um, no, no, no. I, I'm just. I, I mean, believe me, I've I've suffered my bumps mm-hmm. and bruises, but boy, am I blessed with the family that I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, so would, would that be your? Oh my gosh, it's such a. It feels like such a daft question to ask, but would you be happy if that's what you had to do for your projects from now on, was just work with family? Hmm? Would you be happy if just working with family from this point onwards? Fuck, I couldn't be luckier with the goddamn family that I have. It's uh, Danny Elfman, Anastasia Elfman, Bodie Elfman, Jenna Elfman. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> it's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah Bodie, my son... Uh-huh. Okay, three times, like he's going up for like a one-day part on a major TV show, uh-huh. and then they keep him for two seasons. <laughs> this is the kind of talent that kid has. Uh, uh. <laughs> so m- most people who work in the industry, from what I gather, would try and tell their 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 family to not work in the industry. I suspect that you would tell them to yes, work in the industry. It's a great idea. No, no. Was, okay, this is like a bizarre knee-jerk thing. But my son, Bodie, a uh, very independent, I'd even call him like a difficult teenager. Sure. Because kind of like a little kid, but wanted to be the general uh-huh. before it was his time. Okay, so I, I dabble in real estate. I had a building across the street from Santa Monica City College. Okay, just keep a B average. and You know, you're covered. Uh-huh. You know, move here. So he drops out to become an actor. Uh-huh. And then I have this stupid flip out. What do you mean become an actor? You're like, uh, like, like better start plumbing or carpentry or waiter, or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, whatever. Okay. So 10 years later, when he bought Madonna's house, <laughs> I apologized to him. Was that what I said? Yeah. <laughs> Only in Hollywood do you get the same <laughs> <laughs> They live right up the street with my two wonderful grandsons, by the way, uh-huh. who my daughter adores. And uh, I, I have the most blessed, amazing family life. You do seem to. Yeah, yeah. you met my daughter tonight. I did, and it's absolutely lovely. Um, and, and your wife, and you have a very... I, I'm out. I'm in awe of the whole thing. Um, I wish you could have met my mother. Yeah. Taught English. Age 50, published her first novel. Subsequently published 16 novels to Emmys. And her final novel was on Constance Wilde, the wife of Oscar Wilde. And she did a lot of work in... Dublin, uh-huh. researching Oscar Wilde. Wow. Uh, the, the novel is called The Pederast's Wife. Right. I, I mean, this was like tra- heavy tragedy. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and she wanted to do it as a musical, mm-hmm. but we never did it. Would you be tempted? Yes, she passed away a few years ago, uh-huh. but I'm still tempted. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's how I, I went to Ireland with her Mm -hmm. before she passed and we had an amazing trip from Dublin to Galway and back Mm -hmm. 
we never made it to Belfast. Uh, oh, well, now you have an excuse. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Come see us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll show you the sights, both of them. <laughs> Although i got to say, like, great theater scene in Dublin. Yeah. And boy, did I hear great Celtic music in Galway. And had the best fucking fish and chips <laughs> fresh out of the bay <laughs> that I washed down with Guinness. Uh, <laughs> That's the only way to do it. <laughs> uh, uh, Dublin's theatre scene is, is fascinating. And it, I always think of Orson Welles, who started his career in Dublin. Yeah, yeah. And I love this, this story that he creates. I've, I've basically been looking at Orson Welles' locations while I've been in California here. And I'm going to do some more before I finish in Hollywood. Um, but Orson Welles talks about his early experiences in the theatre in Dublin and basically he as a 16 year old he cons the the theatre directors in Dublin that he is a, a well-known actor in the States you watch Lady from Shanghai he has the mm. dodgiest Irish accent that I have yeah, ever yeah, heard yeah. bar Sean Connery's in The Untouchables it, it's pretty atrocious and I'm thinking how did you oh, ever I, I've, I've got to intervene okay okay yeah uh, the director who lived in Ireland and his wife Angelina Houston, John Houston. John Houston, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, Angelica's he did daughter. three things. Okay, when yeah. he does the dead, uh-huh. when he does the dead, here's all the Irish actors mm-hmm. being who they are. And Angelica Houston, her quote-unquote Irish accent was so over the top it stuck out like a sore thumb. Okay, anyway, go back to what you were saying. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about Irish accents. <laughs> come, come to Ireland, shoot some Irish stuff, cast me. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, no, it, it, it's just a weird thing. I, I just think about Orson Welles and, and, and sort of his, his, his crappy Irishness, and yet somehow the Irish theatres apparently embraced him, and that led to his great career. No, I, I could live in Ireland in a moment. Mm-hmm. And I'm taking Celtic dance right now for Forbidden Zone 2 for a number that I'm doing. <laughs> Although I'm going to be aided by wires. Don't, don't <laughs> with tell my leaps. <laughs> with my leaps. If that's you know, it, with my, I, I, I'm a, a drunken, racist, <laughs> circus geek clown <laughs> whose daughter Petunia <laughs> falls in love with a younger black kid in high school and it's a it's a very poignant drama forbidden song too <laughs> if that's not reason enough to have you in the on the island i don't know <laughs> what is but no i i could live in ireland in a moment we would probably happily have it. <laughs> i think you'd probably find a home quite well there i think i think the surrealist <laughs> mentality would suit you very well to be fair i i, I i'm a jew but with my red hair and God, I wish you could have seen me before my nose job. I look more Irish <laughs> or stereotypical, I guess. So, I mean, you've mentioned it. I mean, not even not not to wrap this up on this, but your Jewishness. I mean, how much did that influence what you do? Well, here's the thing. Okay, I've got red hair, so I, I think it was a Viking raid on the shtetl. Sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they go everywhere. Yeah, a thousand years ago or something like that. Mm-hmm. So you know the Vikings. Fucked us all up. <laughs> they <laughs> fucked us all. <laughs> yeah, they definitely fucked you guys over, and I think they fucked me over too. <laughs> so, 
Uh, so it's, we probably have the same bloodlines. I, I dare say. I have my DNA done, Richard. So if you want to get yours done, we'll compare notes. Yeah, we're the Vikings fucked the shtetl. You know? Shtetl being a little Jewish village. Oh. But how the fuck did I get red hair? I don't know. You know, it wasn't from the Mideast. Danny doesn't have it, no. Pardon me? Danny doesn't have the red hair. Your parents didn't have the red hair. No. Both my parents had red hair. Whoa. And Danny has red hair. He does. Okay. And one of my grandsons has red hair. Okay. So We've got three grandsons. I, I think we're going to claim you for one of ours. <laughs> I think we have to. Um, anything else you want to touch on before we wrap this up? <laughs> okay. Is, is that Hollywood out there? Yeah, I, I wish the listeners could see what we're seeing right now. I've got this... I'll take a photograph before uh, we go. Okay, okay, this house is 100 years old, uh-huh. which isn't old by Irish standards. No. But by Los Angeles standards, it's ancient. So, I, actually, you know what? This is an interesting thing. So, we're, we're here in the Hollywood Hills. This house, you said it to me earlier, it has a, a history. Yes. Well, among other things, when uh, John Lennon ran away from Yoko Ono... She had her assistant, Mei Pang, be his mistress. Mei Pang reported back to Ono twice a day until Yono could reel him back. So this is one of the places they lived. Mm-hmm. He painted something on here. Just painted over. Me, yeah. And when I got the place, I actually looked up Mei Pang and talked with her a bit. You know, just to talk about the house. Uh, she wanted to physically get together when we were here, but uh-huh. I didn't do it. But also, uh, Robert Downey Jr. and Sarah Jessica Parker lived here for two years. Uh-huh. Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer lived here. Betty Davis lived over there. Uh, Barry Levinson lived here. Uh-huh. You're Hollywood. Well, you're L.A. born and bred. Well... I was born in Watts and moved up to Crenshaw. I might as well have been a thousand miles <laughs> from Hollywood where I grew up. So at what point did you actually come into this sort of the heart of the film? It wasn't until I came back from Paris right. in my mid-twenties that I got into Hollywood. I mean, what was, what was the draw? I don't know, the draw. Is, is there a draw? I mean... Well, it's like, I mean, my family's here. Okay. And... Uh, the film industry and the music industry is here, mm-hmm. and I'm not quite as bitter about it as I was ages ago. Right. You know, where I look at the positive, okay, even the crumbs of the film industry, I can put a feature film together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just intrigued. I mean, and, and, I mean, isn't this, is, is that a good view or is that a good view? It's, it's spectacular. This is my first time in, in Hollywood. Um, I feel very privileged <laughs> that I get to share my first... By the way, we're right under the Hollywood sign. I, For I, those of you that can't see... I feel very privileged to spend my first my first night in Hollywood <laughs> with Richard <laughs> Elfman, uh, a director I, I have long admired. Um, standing here, I mean, it's it, it's beautiful surroundings. It's beautiful scenery. It's, it's very different from sort of downtown. Um, but for me, this is sort of be, been a kind of mecca in some way. You know, if you're interested in the film industry, at some point, you can't deny that Hollywood has some kind of draw because this is where a lot of classic films originated. 
in little workshops and, and Universal or Warner Brothers or, or, or whatever uh, and that you read these biographies of film stars and directors and they're all living around you know the couple of miles around where we're sitting right now um, so it's all very very special I think, but I, I'm an outsider so of course it's all special so I'm kind of intrigued to see what it's like for someone who's actually you're part of it well, I am. You're part and of that I, I am, and I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> you don't feel like you're part of it. I, I guess so. I guess so. It's. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I. Part of me is like the rebel, the outsider, uh-huh. and then the other side of me is grateful that it's here. Yeah. A- and I'm at this point in my career. I'm still working and able to do films. Do you like being the outsider? I don't know if I like it. I just am. <laughs> Make the best of it. I can't see how you will ever sell <laughs> hipsters to, uh, a, a, you know, a mainstream studio, though. It, I, okay, it, it, it's so. I, I've got to say. Yeah. It's so entertaining and fast-paced. Yeah. That they've tracked me down and they're grabbing it. Yeah. Because it's entertaining. What I've seen, uh, what, what what tasters I've had, I, I definitely. I, I'm going to show. I'm going to show you a little in a few minutes. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. Um, I, don't, I don't mean in any kind of derogatory way, but knowing how the Hollywood machine kind of works, what you do, it fits. Doesn't fit in that kind of easily boxable kind of stuff. And that that I think was part of the reason why I wanted to talk to you in the first place was because the cinema that you do is so in, 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 in film making you know they often talk about auteurs directors who very much have their stamp on everything and you can tell that it's you know it's a Richard Elfman film rather than somebody else's and whilst you may not have been the most prolific of filmmakers your work is very identifiable you know you, you have a very distinctive vision and that, that, that I find attractive Knock on no door, suck on no dick. <laughs> and, 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 and I'm not criticizing my gay friends who do. <laughs> I, I, I think what we'll do there is... is <laughs> oh my gosh. I've got to title each and every one of our podcasts. I Please don't let that be the title for this one. Knock on no doors, suck on no dicks. <laughs> A personal conversation <laughs> with Richard Elfman. Um, Richard, look, thank you very much for, for opening up your hospitality and your home and uh, sharing your thoughts. We hope to see you again, Robert. I hope to see you again very soon. Um, okay, folks, so if you've enjoyed this, you know where to find us. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the rest of it, Cinebunked, or on Instagram at Cinebunked Film. Uh, if you like the podcast, leave us a review or follow us, uh, subscribe. In, uh, it's on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all the rest of it. Uh, you'll find us popping up somewhere else, I'm sure, pretty soon, and you will find more information about the podcast and the uh, project on www.cinepunk.com. Uh, I've been Robert J. Simpson. This has been my responsibility if the edit is bad or the sound is crap compared to what you're used to. And I thank you once again, Mr. Richard Elfman, 
for sharing your home and your time and your food with me and your memories and your thoughts and uh, your sparkling conversation. And I hope we will see you in Belfast at some point in the near future. Richard, thank you very much. And thank you, sir. Thank you. Uh, folks, see you again very soon.